History, Lecture 121, Rabbi Blyweiss. This is uh, the, the, we're kind of doing a, a <clears throat> kaleidoscope. We're going to go around the world a bit and talk about um, Jews around the world with an eye on particularly the return to Torah that starts to take place in the modern era in a, say if you can identify a movement as such, not that there's one organized movement, we see different strands, um, but after the Shoah, after the state, after the intense assimilation, and, and the Jews seem to be on their way out, suddenly there's, there are a few, uh, there are few uh, dynamics that start to reverse the trend, and um, they're certainly part of our story, part of, part of the important uh, part of the narrative in terms of understanding why the Jews look like they do today, that, that there is a notion of Bali Tshuva, the Bali Tshuva movement per se, what's called the Bali Tshuva movement, is obviously not a new phenomenon. There have been waves of Tshuva throughout history. Where would you, where, where would you identify, based on what we've learned together, what, what, where would you identify the first time that there was really identifiable Bali Tshuva movement? In history. Right, going all the way back. Um, I was going to go much earlier. I mean, maybe you don't want to call it Shuva because maybe they were never there to begin with. But I'm, I'm thinking of Avram, Avram Avinu and Sari Avinu. They were Machsi or they, or they were Makar of the people. They were Makar of Avram was Makar of the man. That, right, that generation is lost, but that doesn't discount the fact that they, what they did, there was something going on there. You say, I, what was the Baal Shuva, what they were part of something that they went away from and they came back? And the answer would be to that, yes. Because in everybody, in the, inside of everybody, is the is the nitzotz, is that spark, the divine spark that that connects us. One second, that connects us to a kind of baruch and so you know for sure they're returning to Hashem. What are you gonna say, Daniel? I remember you went to um, no, I was I was referring to the impact. First of all, he certainly returned to Hashem. Oh, yeah, we yeah. all start out with Hashem. He came back, and then he and his wife inspired. According to the Meiri, half the world's population at that time to come back to Hashem. Barak correctly points so how, out so they, they didn't sustain it. So how is that Jewish population? So they didn't sustain. That was Barak's in, point. Uh, they didn't sustain it. There was no system in place. Yes, there was no Torah and no Masorah. There was no ability to um, transmit it to, to the next generation. But okay, if we're doing a quick uh, reminder of in history, significant waves of tshuva where people were far away from Hashem, far, far away from Torah and observance, so where do they come close? You said Eliyahu and Navi? At that one point in history, for that one day that they were at. Ah, by Har Carmel, right? For sure, the people in the north who witnessed the spectacle, the, the miracles. Say again? they had a lot of converts. Absolutely, people came close, non-Jews. It was his motivation in being Ramatskus and Shlomo, his motivation in marrying, well, it wasn't a thousand wives, it was only 700 wives and three concubines. The, uh, but the, the, that clearly, Erev Rav was an attempt to bring people close. It was a um, well intended, ultimately disastrous attempt, a good example. Um, we saw <coughs> Yoshiao Hamelech, his generation, when they discovered the old Sefer Torah. And, and, and it didn't end well for him, but it's certainly uh, something that needs to be, um, you know, included in our list. Um, you got much later events in history. You have, um, you know, it, it, you have the Jews going out to Gullus Bavel. Clearly, uh, a significant Jew. Oh, uh, after Megillah, that's right. 
Sure, absolutely. Uh, right after that, of course, the end of the you know, Kiblu, the Jews, the Jews make tshuva in, at the end of the Megillah. Um, With um, Daniel and uh, sure by the, uh, by the by the by his three friends. Yeah, all the miracles. All yeah. the miracles that we saw. I, mean, I don't know if we see a massive wave of tshuva after that, though. No, I mean the, 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 <coughs> it's the, part of the times and bubble. The people are coming back. But, 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 but the Goyim, the non-Jews saw a lot, but the Jews not necessarily. I don't. I mean, that's, that's not. That's not let's say, remarkable about that, that series of events. Jumping ahead in history, think about, um, uh, anybody here happen to have descendants, uh, ancestors from Yemen, okay, right? So 12th century Yemen, what was going on in the Yemenite Jewish community with their immense persecution and also assimilation, and who wrote them the famous letter that brought them, that changed everything? Rambam, the Igerisa, the Igerisa Teman of the, of the Rambam, Yemenite community around. We have several other instances. We have isolated communities. And more like Rambam's uh, great grandson with what he did to. Excellent. Uh, Rambam's great grandson going to the community, the Bukharan community, right? The Bukharan of Yosef Ben Maimon going to the Bukharan community a couple generations, a couple centuries later. Remember the the Stechemed um, going up and doing much the same work in the Crimea. So that's like a nice, nice. Um, oh, uh, with the and the Kuzari. Oh, right, the Khazar people coming close to Kaddish Baruch Hu for sure, right? I'm also trying to think of times where Jews were far away and then they, they checked their ways and came back and made tshuva. Uh, we have it. It's been recurring through history. So what makes this Baal movement somehow unique in, in uh, relative to all these? That there's so many more? Yeah, I, I, it's, hard to, and, um, it's hard to say this precisely in terms of the numbers since demographics are not, we don't have it down perfectly. We've, we've done surveys of Jews through history, the relative numbers of the Jews, but most of those are speculation. And ultimately, we really don't know how many people were assimilated. And for that matter, how do you go about gauging assimilation? You know that in the times of the Talmud that the people were assimilated. But you know, their brand of assimilation is such a far cry from assimilation that we see today. Then, the what they were called the Am Haaretz, that was the put-down word, they acknowledged the greatness of Chazal, they, they could hear the arguments, they just didn't necessarily practice themselves. Whereas today, arguably, you have the lowest level ever. People who are just so far flung, so far removed, their ignorance um, is almost, entire, almost complete. They know nothing about anything, and that's true increasingly about the majority of Klal Yisrael, people who, who uh, so much so that many people who count themselves as Jews are not technically Jewish, and many people who are technically Jewish don't even count themselves as Jews. That's, that's the degree of assimilation. So on that level, maybe in, in dimension, in just sheer numbers, the, uh, it's, it's, it's much, much larger in the 20, 21st centuries than ever before, um, perhaps unprecedented. And then, so the movement back is more shocking. You ever hear people tell their Balchuba stories? It's more impressive because you just can't believe they were that far gone that they could come so far back. So th these are kind of salient, distinguishing figures, fe uh, features of of, um, of this movement. You could say the movement starts um, as such with Chabad and the Chabad activities we talked about last week um, from the 1950s already. Clearly by the 1960s, there is a movement afoot. There are different forces, not always in sync with one another, sometimes at loggerheads with one another, but definitely different institutions being founded, um, individuals going out, and I'm gonna mention a few of them. Um, 
as perhaps a sign, I mean, if you see, if you try to, we're trying to paint broad strokes uh, like on a canvas of history, and we're trying to understand what's going on with these days, it seems to me this Babachuva movement is something, figures somehow in the Ashaf de Geula, in the Messianic uh, eschatological, which means end of days kinds of um, elements that seem to characterize our times. Um, it's certainly remarkable. You can't believe how far gone some people are, and then they come back. Um, you hear stories of people who grew up in from households and left, and then somehow were turned around. Um, sometimes the opposite is true. Some people, okay. Uh, some some would say the 1960s in the Western world in general played a large role in influencing people to go seeking their roots because of what we call the counterculture. You have a generation of people in the Western world, obviously true in America, but it was really true in much of much of Europe as well, and South Africa and Australia, where a lot of the Jews were the, were the increasing uh, demographics. That's where the Jews are. Uh, were people starting to question tradition, question a lot of what's going on, um, usually in the secular world, that led them to counter anti-establishment kinds of activities, meaning anything but Torah, uh, into, into uh, 60s flower ch children and, 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 and free love, uh, in which, in which pritzus was the order of the day. So that's the antithesis of the Baltuva movement, but I'm arguing, I'm asserting that the same questing, the same questioning of the previous generation, because kids now really didn't trust, their parents were out. Their parents were the, were the uh, honeymooners from the 1950s, the, the sitcom family, and now the new generation is throwing off the, the shackles of the old. Well, the sitcom generation of the 50s were assimilated Jews, for the, as far as Jews were concerned. So if they're throwing off the shackles of that generation, they're looking for something else. Sometimes the way you rebelled against the older generation was actually rediscovering the roots from several generations back. Like, I, I was just going to say, it's like the opposite of the people like during the Romantic period, seeking to overthrow the binds of their the tradition the and going going away to the right. And now the tradition has become the what people or people what people ran away from the tradition to become has become the tradition. That's right. And especially as with all the promise of the Western world and the Enlightenment, you remember as recently as the nineteenth century, the Darwinian view that we're really improving the the you know the, the, the species is progressing. And after the 20th century, after the barbarism of the 20th century and the profound disillusionment across the board with so many of the, um, so many of the isms that failed, failed humanity, um, people now start to look back, maybe the old way wasn't so bad after all, and trying to rediscover something. Um, all of these are very much a part of the, I mean, we're describing major complex um, patterns, but these are, these are part, of the, part of the dynamics Part of the questing, the emptiness, the, the, the sadness that, that permeates, that, that, that kind of drives the, the, um, the flow of people towards Torah uh, is, is, is this empty, counter, empty culture and the counterculture of the 1960s. The, um, you have popular figures that start to emerge. I'll mention certainly Shlomo Karlbach as one of them. Uh, he was initially, he got smicha. Uh, he was one of the few who got smicha from Ravon Cutler and went his own way. And um, I, I, he's often celebrated um, un, with, un, without qualification. I think it deserves to be qualified. He um, did certain things that were unjustifiable from a Torah perspective. 
was physical with women on stage and, and other things that he, I'm sure, had rationalized and worked out like most people do, but um, I wouldn't rationalize them. Uh, in some of his activities, still, he would try, what, what he was, he would found, um, among, among his accomplishments, not just that he would, um, his music remains part of the landscape, but his, um, he founded the House of Love and Prayer in San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury. Uh, district, as he played into the popular culture as a way, as a vehicle through which you would draw people in. Uh, right, you had soul music that now in the hippie vein that now could have Jewish lyrics. And that, that, of course, he was one of the first to do that. Now today you have a whole industry around taking what are secular um, icons, secular music genres and, and trying to use them to attract people. Um, certainly the Six Day War played a role in, 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 in the package that anybody who was looking around saw the miracles and, and, and wondered the very existence of a, of a Jewish nation in their holy land. Uh, made you pause and think, what's it all about? Uh, maybe redemptive times are approaching. Writers would emerge that would, would, would uh, plug into the zeitgeist, into the popular sentiment. I'm thinking of Rev. Aryeh Kaplan, who's, who was... Uh, he wrote more more books than right more books than most people read in their lifetime. He lived he lived a short life from 1934 to 1983, but um, he provided spiritually questing Jews with uh, among other things access to ideas, especially in Kabbalah, that they had no uh, connection to or, or 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 a way of approaching. And he made it accessible in a way that some people criticize. Say it again. Abraham, the guy that we met in. Right, Abraham, right, who we met in Sfat was certainly his, his, his way back was very much by, by, by the way of reading Arya Kaplan's books, and he's not the only one. Um, there would also be, and now I'm jumping beyond the 60s, certainly into the 80s, 90s, uh, and, 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 uh, and beyond, would be um, uh, just a, a publishing boom, a plethora of how to guides. It would also kind of, you know, people who were n not from growing up suddenly had easy to read, carefully written books, and now increasingly internet sites that guide you step by step. So the idea of, of, of taking on Torah from complete ignorance, from complete uh, non-observance, um, guiding you step by step through the fundamentals was somehow doable. Over in the Soviet Union, where we had a large population of Jews, uh, behind the what we call the Iron Curtain, I don't know if you know this. If this even means anything to you in your life, in your lifespan, uh, you guys were born after the in the 1990s after the Iron Wall fell. But you know, in the I mean, when I grew up in the 1970s, one of the things that we did, I remember um, when I was teaching in Reform Synagogue, one of the parts of social activism, Reform Jews pride themselves often on social activism, is we went down to the local Russian consulate in, in uh, I was teaching in Berkeley, but uh, no, actually in Lafayette, California, but we went across the bridge and went into San Francisco to the Soviet consulate and protest, let my people go. That was our slogan and uh, protesting for the release of the part uh, of um, the detente and, and the um, 
the fact that Jews were um, kept against their will in the Soviet Union, completely removed from any tradition. It was illegal for them to pray, to daven, to, to, um, to, to learn, to, uh, to have any access to tradition. What's that? To leave. To leave. And now there are already many generations removed from tradition, even if their great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents from before the Bolshevik Revolution might have been traditional. Remember, Russian Jews were already on the way out. Uh, but at this point, even positive will, there's almost nobody had any, had any Yiddishkeit in their background since the 1920s. Um, it was eradicated by the very effective um, big brother of the Soviet Union. Um, and so now, suddenly, you have, you have elements of a return to tradition. Um, in the Soviet Union, in the, in the height of the oppression, 1960s, 70s, suddenly we started to find a small number of Jews, probably the most, the most famous was a fellow by the name of Anatoly Sharansky, who's today Nassan Sharansky. He's now in Eretz Israel. as most of the, you know the term refusenik? Remember the refuseniks, the people who applied for uh, visas and were refused and then imprisoned uh, for having the audacity to try to get out. So he and others were known to study secretly Torah, whatever, whatever little uh, um, stocks they could, they, could, they, could, they could find. Foreign rabbis um, from around, I mean, not just Chabad, but Chabad was, was part of this, and other organizations would smuggle over Svarim, they would smuggle matzos before Pesach and Tefillin and Mezuzos. They would be arrested sometimes for the contraband. Right? Other people smuggle drugs, so I guess it would be worse in life. Um, the, uh, there was a general, very gradual raising of consciousness among Soviet Jews, both locally and, and abroad. People started hear about, hearing about the plight of these, of these Soviet Jews. I don't know about you, but to my mind, it reminds me of uh, the times under the Spanish Inquisition. Were Jews secretly, they, they on the surface were practicing Catholics, but as conversos, quietly behind the scenes, they were practicing Judaism. So there's, there's shades of this in the Soviet Union, while there was still a Soviet Union. Um, a whole Kiruv network would eventually rise up where they, would, they smuggled religious materials uh, in, in a larger scale operation. And then, beginning in 1999, the Soviet Union fell down pretty rapidly. And with the fall of the Soviet Union, suddenly um, many of the Russian Jews got out in waves, in, in, in massive immigration, many to America, many to Eretz Israel. Eretz, Israel again absorbed this huge influx unnaturally. You know, it's hard to take in new immigrants to begin with. But when they come over en masse like this, it was, it was not easy. This one, though, in contrast with the uh, Jews coming from the foreign, the Muslim-ruled land in the 1950s, um, here, the Russians brought over not a lot of money, but an immense amount of what they call in academic circles brain power. They were um, skilled and trained and, and brought a lot of scientific knowledge. And so, and, and of course, they were part of, it's not a Western society, it was a second world society, the Soviet Union, but they were at least somewhat familiar with the tools of modernity and could integrate a little bit more easily into the society. Not entirely. I mean, today you still hear Russian spoken there. Um, the, the, you see the beginnings of the, um, of the fraying of what was, a very, what was previously a very strong Russian party in the Israeli Knesset, and if you follow Israeli politics, but Victor Lieberman was the leader of the party. Um, this last election, they were trounced. They went, they had, it's hard to express this in numbers because they were, um, they combined with Likud, but effectively they were the partner with the ruling power in Israel with some, between the two of them, they had 30 seats. So, so 
let's say they accounted for 15, 16 seats in the Knesset, this last election they split from Likud and got four seats. Now part of that is due, because, due to the fact that there was uh, many in the party were, were found guilty of corruption. Um, but part of it is the fact that um, after being in Israel for the, a, few, a, a few decades, many of the Russians no longer identify exclusively as Russians, and they're voting otherwise. They may not vote for this party, even though the Russians tend to be right-wing by, um, as far as they generalize, they tend to be right-wing. Uh, conservative, fearing Arabs, that's a, that's a generalization that often holds true. Um, together with all this, as they come out and they find new shores and freedom, um, some of the Russians are questing spiritually. And so now there's a demand for religious text in Russian. And so there's a new, there's a new field of translating the Siddur, the Chumash, and then even the, uh, even the Talmud into Russian uh, that, that, that remains um, something in development till today. Uh, just to get a sense of the numbers, from 1992, 350,000, just in 1992 alone, uh, Jews would emigrate to Eretz Israel, and over the next 10 years, it would be about 800,000 Jews. Tens of thousands went, went to the United States and elsewhere. Um, I just want to finish the thought before I lose it, and then you're on. Um, has anybody here ever done Kiruv with Russians? That's hard sometimes. Unless they're questing, um, sometimes the Russian Jews, because there's so many generations not just removed from Judaism, but removed from anything remotely spiritual, there's sometimes you, you, you lack a common vocabulary to even um, explain things to them. In contrast, let's say, with assimilated uh, Americans who don't know anything about Judaism, but the culture is a very Christian-dominated culture. They're spiritual icons. They resonate. You talk about a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and they, 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 have a, they, have a, they have a vocabulary, a theological vocabulary, but a lot of them, the Russian Jews, don't even have that much. What's God? So it's a different phenomenon. However, when they return, sometimes they, they do so spectacularly. And they, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, two things. My yeah. uh, uncle is actually in charge of like the big Russian uh, community. He's the Kiruv guy in Baltimore. Okay. That's his official title, Kiruv guy in Baltimore? No, but he's the Russian. Um, Great. Good job to have. Good. But and there's a big, there's a big Russian population in Baltimore. Giant, giant, giant yeah. Like yeah, I, I know in the tri-state area there is Baltimore too. Okay, it's, uh, there's like four uh, blocks of just just Russian Jews. Just Russian yeah, Jews. I mean, it, it makes sense that people, especially when you speak a common language, would stay together. Right. So, and he actually taught himself Russian to like help with the thing. Oh wow, look about It's very productive. It's very. Um, but my comment was. I thought a lot of the Russians weren't even Jewish, though, when they came around. Yeah, yeah, it's it's another dynamic that's a problem. A lot of people um, got in the bandwagon. Remember now, with all the assimilation, many of the Russians were intermarried. So families left, looking for good opportunities. And Israel, with its law of return, opened its doors. And so many of them hopped on the wagon. Many, many of them. And not only people intermarried with Jews, but sometimes just non-Jewish Russians came over. So indeed, there are a lot of non-Jews in Israel, and it remains demographic. It makes a halachic issue. <clears throat> the secular state is eager and willing to convert them, and, and the Russians themselves have no problem with that because then they have full citizenship. Halachically, of course, that, that represents a major problem. These people are not practicing Jews and they have no, have no intention to be, at least not in the immediate future. But they haven't converted yet. Many of them try, and that's all part of what is unfolding today, what's going to be with them. Um, so far, it's not not it's not a blanket. They don't they don't. It's not automatic that if they want to convert that they're able to. 
Um, it, you, ha you you've seen also we're talking about coming from dis disparate parts of the world. You have the mass immigration of what are called the Ethiopian Beta Israel community, um, who the chief rabbinate. The truth is, they started to come over um, already in the 50s and 60s, but with the immense persecution in Ethiopia of the Beit Israel, so um, they started coming over in large waves from the 1980s, Operation Magic Carpet, Operation Moses, and uh, Moshe, and others, Mitzah Moshe, and um, suddenly you have a halakhic question. What, what do you do with these people? We've discussed this before as well. The chief rabbinate converted them because of their ambiguous roots. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the Red Baz. We said, has the opinion that they may be from the tribe of Dan, not knowing uh, it's a favor to them to convert them <coughs> so they don't get into the whole complicated parsha of the Suffolk Mamzer. Uh, Ethiopian Jews are not just from the Beit Yisrael community. Um, some, <coughs> some of them are from another community called Falashmura. And they had previously converted to Christianity. Um, and <coughs> many of them are demonstrably not Jewish or at least non-demonstrably Jewish, you hear the difference? Meaning some of them are absolutely not Jewish and then they're applying, applying for Jewish citizens. Others may be, but we just don't know. So um, they too would come over. <clears throat> um, there are elements in that community. They would grow in their, in, in their observance. Um, many came to um, Israel. I think it was fair to characterize them as very grateful. Uh, their, their community in Ethiopia were persecuted and um, didn't see many prospects and suddenly they were given a new opportunity um, but in the course most Western minorities learn quickly that there's and I don't think it's, it's cynical I think this is really what they believe but um, I, I, there is a dynamic in the Western society um, it, it's pref it's you, you it's advisable to play the victim card uh, when you see yourself as the, as the um, persecuted minority, you can, and I think the Ethiopians, what was it in the news today, right? That, that they are uh, protesting their... It's been their, in the news the last, been in the news in the last several years. And it's based on truth. It's getting bad, though, now. Okay, it's not been good. I mean, I don't think it's getting bad. I think it's been consistent with Israel's racist society. And it doesn't make much sense. Why would Israel have no problem integrating so many Russian uh, non-Jews, and yet Ethiopians come over, and because of the color of their skin, that's a problem. Suddenly, there is something. There's there, there's a double standard there. Um, <clears throat> but they learn quickly to play the victim card uh, in in the society, um, and indeed they are relative to their numbers. They're the most impoverished, discriminated. Um, they're, they're discriminated against a population in Israel um, till today, unlike the Russian Jews who were more adept at making it in, in, in such a society, the Ethiopians en masse didn't necessarily Yemenites are in society? much more integrated, they came earlier and they were, yeah we did talk about that once upon a time um, I know I have a friend who has an amuta, a non-profit in Israel um, based on, there was um, a young man, an inspiring young man who was learning in Merkaz Arabi Shiva and he was one of eight victims uh, in a terrorist attack that took place 10 years ago um, where a gunman got into the yeshiva and murdered eight of them in cold blood and this young man was among them 
And there are different apocryphal stories about him. I heard that it's not quite the story that you often hear, but something to the effect of he was rags, he was really had no background in learning, but was drawn to Kaddish Baruch Hu and really saw himself as, as wanting to be the rabbi of an Ethiopian community, because they don't have a lot of rabbis homegrown from their own community, and it makes sense. Uh, I personally like to relate to my rabbi. I like them to have a commonality of culture and language and so on. So many of the many of the people who are rabbis who are the Ethiopians are, let's say, Ashkenazi, and the ability to connect is then limited. So he wanted to be that wrong, and his dream was not realized. So my friend has a as a as a non 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 profit um, organization that now. I think they sponsor several Ethiopian rabbinic students to train and eventually realize the stream that he that they should go on and, and be able to, to, to serve that community. I heard the first translated, which I think is great, the first translated uh, Amharic. Yeah. Yeah. To, like Hebrew, uh, they just made a Polish and this is what it's been. I don't know when they first came. They right, it's 20, 20, 30 years later. It's just years ago, right, yeah. okay, so slowly, slowly. Um, Okay, these are two of the many populations that are more striking. Each one of them has the stories that I, that I single out. We'll talk about now some of the broader phenomena. Beginning in the 1970s, uh, you had different kinds of organizations that sprouted out. Many of them combined initially um, as what now are called Baal Yeshivas. Arguably, the flagship place was a place by the name of Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael, which had um, in its leadership were people who would go on to found some of the great, more famous modern uh, Baal Yeshivas, Shema Yisrael changed its name when it was criticized for the name as being, what, your Shema Yisrael? It almost seemed, seemed almost like an arrogant position. They changed the name to Or Sameach, right? So Or Sameach was really, um, originally a composite. Um, they also, out of, out of Shema Yisrael came Reginald Weinberg from ancient Torah. Uh, Heritage House was connected one, once upon a time, Machon Shlomo and Harnof um, and, and, and others. Uh, there would be then um, Bali Tshuva programs, many of which based in Eretz Yisrael, with the understanding that Eretz Yisrael inspires unlike any place in the world. Um, there would also be international branches and activities and, and initiatives of different kinds uh, attracting Jews from around the world. That there is a pattern. We saw this, you remember we talked about the, pers the personal story of Moses Montefiore. Just coming there to show itself was a big blast of, of, of um, identity. You connect with your roots, you connect with history, you see, you see Jewish people in the big scheme of things, that inspires people. So in, when I worked in, in Campus Kiruv, <clears throat> we sent um, these young couples on college campuses where a lot of the money goes, a lot of because you have limited resources, limited manpower, uh, and so how do you go about trying to makarov literally hundreds of thousands of assimilating young people uh, on the college campuses around the world today. So the sentiment is, you know, you want to do, do this with statistical kinds of efficiency, get the most people turned on as you possibly can, get them to Israel. Sponsor, sponsor Israel trips. And not necessarily birthright trips, which tend to be spiritually dry, but get them to any number of these organizations that, that run these, run these uh, programs. Um, you have now the founding of uh, Youth movements, NCSY is familiar to many people, but not just NCSY, all around the world. You had now the founding of Yeshiva Day Schools, and maybe you don't think of Yeshiva Day School as a Kiruv, as a Kiruv uh, organization, because after all, the community is Orthodox, no? But we know Orthodoxy is something that's, been, that's in ascendance today, but tricky to have anybody living a from life in the very um, enticing, 
seductive modern world. So the schools themselves are on some level trying to make part of these supposedly from people. Um, sometimes they're not feel battle, but, they, but um, <clears throat> 1987, an organization called NJAP was founded, National Jewish Outreach Program, uh, with the idea of trying to innovate programs reaching out not just to kids but to young adults. Generally in Kiruv, the consensus is you try to focus on young people who have a chance to change their lives. Hospital, you never close the door, you never give up on anybody, but usually the older you get, the less likely um, people are going to change their life around, something we talked about a few minutes ago uh, in another class. The, um, there's a dynamic, the Kiruv movement, this Balchuba movement, which is maybe a half a century old, is relatively, the way it's been designed is relatively new, and one thing that has that been pointed out, and I, it's striking and people don't always consider this, and that is that the Baal movement is a wonderful thing. People have become religious, have, have, have uh, in many ways, new returnees uh, have, have, to, have, have actually infused a new life in the Torah world, sometimes taking on leadership positions in the Torah world. There's, Bali Chuba can be very smart and talented, and there are people who now are rushing yeshiva and, uh, and, and, and leading, leading many, many aspects of the Jewish world today. Um, but as a movement per se, it was not initiated, initiated by the Gedolim. The Gedolim, the consensus that we see from the Gedolim, their emphasis seems to be on um, not so much outreach as much as internal uh, strengthening, and especially in the area of Tyra. So if, if, if the donors of the Jewish world, of the from Jewish world, were to ask the Gedolim, probably the Gedolim would say, channel your money to the yeshivas. Meaning, make the people who are learning on a high level stronger, and that's, that will be the vehicle that will get us closest to the Messianic era. Once Mashiach comes, everything else will follow. Is their formula. Um, but the donors, generally, my experience is that they're big tzaddikim, and their intention is L'shem Shemaim, but like much of the world today, uh, people do things on their own. They go about uh, doing things, and if, especially the donors are often self-made men in business. They apply their self-made men, their um, efficient approaches to business to Kiruv, and they feel it's a numbers game. Get more people to be from, and so and so. Those seem to be the um, that seems to be the objectives in the Kiruv world. I asked that when I went to work in a Kiruv organization, I it was all about Kiruv Rachokim, bringing the, the the people far away back. And sometimes the fundraising is all about, the, in, in one very glossy fundraising brochure I saw of, an, of such an organization, they actually showed before, during, and after, kind of like a lose weight kind of a volume, right? This was, you know, this one she had um, rings through her, every aspect of her nose. And then like, you know, in the, in the during and after, the after stage, she's this Madela mother of five, you know, with her husband in Kolel. She probably doesn't even look like the same woman, ironic. And, right, okay, yeah, which is exciting. You want to raise money, that's a great way to raise money for, for carrying Jews. Wow, look at the, you can see the, the um, tangible results. Okay, but, but you can see the tangible results from such, such efforts. If you do what's called cure of Provim, trying to bring the people who are off the derrick from religious backgrounds, that's much less glamorous, much harder work, even though it seems the Gedolim put a, more, put a higher premium on that, on that work. My point is that the Kiruv movement is not always reflecting the will of the Gedolim, but, uh, and, and it's a good thing, but it's, 
uh, needs to be resolved still. It's still a relatively new movement that needs to be worked. A lot of the kinks need to be worked out. Um, moving around the globe a little bit, you have populations far and wide. You have um, what was, a, by the, let's say, 70s and 80s, a very large um, dynamic community in South Africa of mostly Lithuanian Jews, emigres who had left, uh, as it's generalized, generally very educated, very literate, um, mostly assimilated, but um, South African Jews, because of the nature of South Africa before, uh, during apartheid, South Africa was a very conservative Christian society, and much of the schmutz of modern Western society was ex was outside. People didn't go to the movies. They didn't have. They weren't exposed. So the that reflected itself in a deeply traditional culture, which means that when the Kiruv organizations like um, Asia Torah and Or Sameach, for example, that were very effective in South Africa, went, they found a very receptive audience. Sometimes even more so than many parts of the world, that uh, they had people who are innately traditional and and who never really assimilated by choice. It just that was the way of the world. Um, yeah, yeah, Bali Chuba movement. Um, what's that? Yeah, starting around the 1980s and moving around the world. Go ahead. Why does the East do a lot more uh, like up and like grabbing Kiryu? Uh, so Aish, let's say one the the. the it's to my, the best of my understanding, the um, the yeshivas broke apart early on um, because of a difference in philosophy, a different of, of approach, where Aish was um, and remains on the cutting edge of mass kiruv of effective. Um, they have they have elaborate websites and literature, and um, they were criticized. Let's say I think that this is very different right now. Um, our beloved Rabbi Dvorin, is, uh, is, his daughter became a Kala and is marrying the Rosh Kolel in the Aish. Uh, and she was somebody who I know too, who actually spoke to my Kiru group, wonderful, wonderful family. Anyway, um, so they, they, this is being, the following is being corrected now, but let's say initially Aish would often, let's say, have a program for Bali Tshuva where they learned that the talented, bright, dynamic, young returnees would learn for a very few years and then be trained as rabbis to go out and do kiruv in, in turn, but the criticism was their own induction into Jewish life was kind of limited and shallow. They were only from for a few years, and so they weren't always ripe and ready to go out and do kiruv themselves. That again is being revised. Um, others said, well, you know, they didn't emphasize learning per se. It was more, um, you can go to Aish and see why the Western world is terrible. Uh, but not necessarily understand the profundity of the uh, Jewish tradition internally. Or Sameach was, let's say, focusing more on streamlining people to become Talmudichachamim, to learn all of halacha so that you could practice all of halacha, and was more content-oriented. Um, Today, the differences are not quite as pronounced. Aisha Torah has developed a very elaborate yeah, kolel. But Aish sends people out. They tend to be more mass marketing. They tend to be more, if you want to say that's Chabad, they're more mass marketing. They have fantastic, a uh, fantastic organization. They're very effective. They have great videos. They have great, much, much of which Orson Math doesn't have and many of the other organizations don't have. I mean, Maor, this organization connected with, today uh, from Gershenfeld and Harnov, they are almost the opposite of this approach Aish. They focus on the individual. Um, and the criticism of them is they, against them is that, is that they have such immense talent and ability to reach Jews that in the end they only reach a handful of Jews. And yet there are, there are we know there are 13 million Jews in the world, most of them are assimilating and questing and hungry. They're not getting their message out effectively. 
So which one is right, which one is wrong? Um, I don't know if it's a contest, and it's good that they're all in the mix. Uh, maybe, you know, Kaddish Baruch Hu has his plans. Um, there are movements far and wide in places like South America, Central America, which would be um, the host to many people who either before the Holocaust or after the Holocaust escaped. Um, these are also very assimilated communities, but because they're sort of away from Jewish centers, they tend to be more um, open and interested when exposed to Torah, and so the potential is immense. I have a friend who I've guided Santiago, Chile, uh, for, for now many years, and a friend of mine is, has been there doing wonderful work, and um, there too, I guess, similar to what I described in South Africa, you have a population who's so assimilated, they don't know that you're supposed to hate the Orthodox. In places like New York, there's so much cynicism, and that the Reform have exposure to what they think is exposure to the total world. The Orthodox, they sort of have a, um, a, a set of, of uh, preconceived pre, um, notions. Pre notions, I guess, is what I'm looking for. Uh, you know, they, they have their ideas, but in places like Santiago, Chile, who ever heard of Orthodox? And so, and so, there's there's a school there, the Rambam School in Santiago, where uh, you know, people are coming from, and sometimes they come and they spend years in yeshiva and seminary if the, for the women, and uh, they turn they turn their lives around. Um, again, how we assess this in terms of numbers is difficult because we know in terms of people becoming becoming um, balechuva, sometimes it's complicated in a lifetime. Sometimes people become very enthusiastic, and as quickly as they become from from. They also then become not from. It's one of the reasons why here we tend to discourage people from uh, putting on the external trappings, the hat and jacket of from kind. First, fix the inside. You develop yourself from the inside up. Um, so it's hard to put an actual number. Um, people could let's say let's say change their lives and look the part, but not necessarily be particularly happier at Shemai. So I don't know how you go about getting a statistics. That's why I'm trying. My presentation here is self-consciously sloppy and anecdotal. I'm just giving you a, a painting a mural of different dynamics in the world. Um, you know, with, it's also unclear if there's such a nice Balchuva movement. So then, why aren't the demographics, let's say, in the land of Israel, changing more markedly? Something, something that uh, strikes me as interesting. If there are people becoming so from, why, and the demographics of Orthodox Jews, we tend to have more babies than, than, than the average uh, secular family, that's an understatement, um, wouldn't you expect then the religious parties in the Knesset would have grown over the years? Well, there are different ways of explaining it, but more or less what you find if you compare today's Knesset with the original Knesset from the, uh, from the founding of the state, there's more or less the same number maybe a few more, of religious Knesset members throughout, throughout Israel's history, demographically that should not be the case. They should be, there should be somewhere in the, in the 20s and 30s, based on, based on the projections and logic, there should be more. Clearly, lots of things are going on, including the fact that it's not always, it's not always um, pleasant to consider this, but many people who were raised in the religious world are not anymore, or don't identify anymore, and they don't vote that way, certainly. Um, and that is for people who, be, for every Jew who becomes from, there are other Jews who might retain the external appearance of from Kai, but they're not necessarily practicing and they're certainly not voting in from ways in, in the land of Israel. Um, as they just, um, they developed the Shabbos, the first, sha the first bus to circulate in Yerushalayim and provide transportation for the secular. So the picture that was featured in an article that I saw of the Shabbos, which is Chil Shabbos, uh, was of a Jew with a black kippah on his head. 
There's a Jew with a black on his head, on his head looking like um, this last Shabbos, I think was the first maiden, maiden journey of the Shabbos. Uh, bus and um, and and I, the Jew that was featured in the prominently in the picture was wearing a black kippa. It didn't look so from. So I don't know the back story. You never know. A picture's not not worth worth more than a thousand words. You don't know exactly what's going on behind the uh, the people featured in the picture. But you wonder if this is a guy who was once religious but hopped on the Shabbos uh, out of convenience. You were going to say something before. In communities, similar dynamic that I mentioned in South Africa, communities like Australia, uh, Great Britain, um, and, and throughout Europe, what you would find was um, also a receptivity to the Torah message, if there was a Torah message to get out there, because um, there, weren't, there weren't so many viable alternatives seen competing with orthodoxy. Meaning there was the Torah, there was the Jewish, the traditional Jewish approach, or there was nothing. Um, there wasn't and there remains not really an organized large movement of, of liberal Jews outside of North America. Um, in England, you can find what they call progressive Judaism, but it's a minority. It's not a, it's not a dynamic organization. So you go to, have you ever been to, break, uh, to, to, to England, go around? Much of the community, you would think, are assimilated, and the shul that they sometimes go to is Orthodox or modern Orthodox. They're not necessarily practicing, and it's true of a lot of the students that come to Dara. But they have a strong emotional connection, and if they connect with anything, it's the orthodox shul, not that not the progressive, what would be called reform and conservative in America. And that's true in many parts of the world, that people are simply, the shul I don't go to is the orthodox one. Certainly that's the case in Australia. Um, that was my comment when I spoke to the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the reform movement rabbinic. Um, uh, contingency that came, comes once a year to Israel, and they asked me. I was I was representing the Haredi community and giving them a, a lesson on Haredi life, and they said, as a Haredi Jew, what is your opinion about Reform Jews and Reform Reform movements and Reform rabbis? And I, I was very candid. I told them we were not. I'm not going to pull punches. I would be very honest and upfront. I said, I think it's a shame. I th I wish it didn't exist. I wish you guys were not in your jobs. I wish that on the Jewish people. Not because I want to be divisive and I hate you. I don't hate you. I love you. You're Jews. I said, but the, the problem is, you can argue, and they do argue this, from, that you, they would say, from my perspective, better this reform than nothing. Because at least the Jews have some place to go and they're doing something. And something's better than nothing. And I countered, I don't agree. It's not better something than nothing, because the Jews who have your something think that that's enough. And think that that's adequate to be a reform a conservative Jew, and that that's another kind of Judaism. I think it's better to be in a place like Sydney, Australia, where really the the, the again there's a liberal movement down in Australia as well, but um, down is such a down under. It's such an uh, irrational way of referring to it, but that's the way the way the world thinks about it. Um, in any case, the um, an assimilated Jew in Sydney. If they suddenly get a get a inspired, they get a, they're moved to try to explore their roots more. They're much more likely to find their way back to what I understand to be authentic Judaism, the Torah tradition. A um, little bit of what's going on in Europe after World War II, uh, those remaining Jews in um, in Europe would gravitate um, to the West, places like Britain and France. Um, gradually. Uh, there would be a revival of populations in such unlikely places as Poland and even Germany. Germany has a thriving, um, not, not some religious Jews, but general Jewish community till today, which you would 
you wonder if the ironies of history that would create that. In um, France particularly, um, they would see a boon, one of the largest Jewish populations in the world, and where, does the, where do the French Jews come from today? Overwhelmingly from North Africa. The, the large part, certainly, of the Orthodox French community are emigres who, when, when, the, um, when Israel was founded, and the North African communities, uh, Jewish communities, suddenly found themselves in flight against hostile regimes. Some of them came to Israel, uh, but many of them went, went north, and France absorbed many, especially from Algeria, Tunis, but Morocco as well. Um, there would be also different populations in eastern countries, the leading posekador, Rav Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, we've met before. He was, um, the, his, his, he's known by his great collection of tubas called the Sri Day Eish, literally the, 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 the survivor of fire. He was a survivor of the Shoah. Um, he had learned in the Mir in Slobodka. He eventually headed, remember the old Hildesheimer Seminary? The, what was seen as the flagship seminary of modern orthodoxy, even though it wasn't really modern orthodoxy in the 19th century. It was, it was a modern orthodox, but Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer and, uh, and, and was the first, the first rabbinic school to feature secular studies. Okay. Uh, anyway, he became the Rosh Hashim, he became the head of the uh, Hildesheimer Seminary. Um, you know of him because of his famous heter? The Sri Daesh? You don't know? You do know. Is it the heter that I'm thinking of having to do with Shemitah? No. No, 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 not that one. Kol Isha. The, oh, the, the, yeah, the NCAA That's the Shri Day Esha. Really, he wrote it, and this is characteristic of what's not in Europe in the past four years. He, he, wrote, he wrote the Tshuva um, because in early 60s France, the youth group called Ezra uh, was, excuse me, Yeshurun, not Ezra. Ezra's another youth group. Yeshurun in France the kids were almost completely gone, but they had a spark left, and they were reconnecting to this youth group. But it was boys and girls together. Because if you were not going to allow the boys and girls, he also has a truth about having a mixed organization, like a mixed youth group, for the same reason that NCSY relies on those branches of NCSY that remain co-ed, relies on this. He said, because if you were to have, if you were to tell the kids that they could only go to a, a segregated by gender youth group, not, nobody would show up. NCSY that's not... Uh there are a couple things. They have a couple of the very, very stark programs like the NCSY Summer Kolel. They, 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 bring, they bring the very serious boys. Uh, now it's in Beit Shemesh, uh, Beit Meir. It was, uh, it, was, it was in Efrat and elsewhere in the past. Um, but they, they learn it's like a yeshiva program, but it's connected with NCSY. You're right. Most of NCSY's activities are co-ed for the same reason. That if you tell, it's a, it's a cube organization. If you tell the kids that they're going to be only boys or only girls, few will show up. So it's based on that that they that they within some parameters they that they're permitted they're, they 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 rely on this three day age to have a mixed group um, and to allow mixed singing because if you tell the girls don't sing they wouldn't show and if the girls didn't come the boys wouldn't come all these things were interconnected uh, and, and lest you think it, it, it's 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 a, a profound shuva it's widely referred to and even in the yeshivish world it's relied on for example in the in, he, he brings a number of, of um, concepts and he combines them together to create the heter, including tre kali lo mishtame, two voices are not heard. So if you have a group singing, as well as an individual singing, you can rely on that leniency, you're not really listening to the girls' voices. He then added, if you're singing shirim et tushbachos, you're singing uh, songs and praises of the Kaddish Baruch Hu, that's also grounds for leniency. He was shocked, he came from, remember Mir and Eastern Europe, Women and men did not sing together. Shabbos table, that didn't happen. When he came to Germany after the war, he was astounded by very good 
from families who were lenient in this regard, and he found that the leniencies dating back to Shimshon Rafael Hirsch and Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, that was done in Germany. Remember, East, Western Europe was not Eastern Europe. It was much more, was much more let's say, um, lenient in some of these, in some of these areas. Rabbi Israel Hirsch did a lot of Kiruv. He did a lot of Kiruv. They needed his, 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 think about Germany in the 19th century. They needed it. The 19 letters, the Horeb, yes. When did, um, so cure for the reform movement is now a thing, when did that come uh, let me let me let me finish talking about Europe and let me get to your question. Kiru for reform, what they call Kiru. Let, we'll get to it. Let me talk. I'll talk about reform in a moment. Fine. Reasonable question. Um, um, there would be communities, Torah communities, that would grow and build, and today are among the thriving Torah communities in the world. Mostly, I'm thinking in Western Europe, but not just. So I'm thinking of um, in, in the Gateshead in Manchester in England. I'm thinking of, let's say, Antwerp, Antwerp in, in, um, in, in uh, Amsterdam. And, um, and Belgium has communities. There, there, there are strong Jewish communities. Lots, lots of Hasidim will go, very isolated communities, and, um, and, and do very well. So Europe is, is enjoying something of a renaissance after the Shoah today uh, of, of religious uh, people coming back to tradition. Um, coming back to tradition. The um, I'll, I'll come back to Eretz Yisrael, but let me let me take let me let me address Akiva's issue. So reform. We might have mentioned this when we talked about reform, but it's relevant now to bring it out too. Uh, initially, if you remember, reform movement was a way of acculturating, becoming a good uh, German of the Mosaic persuasion, but being Jewish at the same time. Their argument was you didn't have to convert; you could be effectively like all your good Christian neighbors, but go to the synagogue that was effectively like a church, and your rabbi was really like a clergy. They dressed like that. They had a choir. They had all the trappings. But it was a vehicle for assimilation. Um, they did such a fantastic job that by around the time of the Shoah, and then already turning around after the Shoah, they started to worry about the other dynamic. They did such a great job of acculturating that they were concerned there'd be no future. Where would be their constituents? People would come to the logical conclusion that I don't need reform. I could be, I could baptize myself and be a per- or, or 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 go to go to the local Presbyterian uh, church and be a perfectly good American or or, or integrate into the into the standard society. So sometime in, from the 1950s and 60s, reform and then in their wake afterwards, reconstructionists and conservative as well would form a new phase, and it wasn't like it was organized, gradual process of having an alternate Judaism that they wanted to track people towards. It was shockingly, increasingly traditional, at least they claimed it was traditional. The reason why I put the traditions in quotation marks is because usually it didn't mean that you were doing the traditions out of serving a Kaddish Baruch It was more of like an ethnic, cultural kind of identification. I know, um, let's say, one reform rabbi, a woman who, um, she says, Asher Yatsar, after coming out of the bathroom. Because trying to learn from tradition, she tries to pick and choose those things that speak to her. Well, listen, Asher Yatsar is objectively profound. The fact that we have this beautiful body that works well and that you want to say the bracha to, to show appreciation for what you have, of course, not believing in a Kodesh Baruch Hu, she's showing general appreciation, I guess, to the goddesses that exist in the world, that, this, that the body works this way, but she uses the nusach from tradition. I don't know if that's what you're referring to. But the um, one pictures, let's say, the traditional uh, reform, if there's such a thing, if that's not an oxymoron, the um, campfire, guitar playing, almost um, hippie-influenced 
um, Reform Rebetzin or Rabbi, uh, no, no, Rebetzin, no, Rabbi, um, you know, getting up and, and talking about New Age, very usually very liberal, because American Jews tend to be very liberal, um, ideas and kind of a car of people towards their notion of what, whatever, whatever their agenda is, whatever that might be. That's a kind of Kiruv too, I guess. And for questing Jews, Jews are always searching for something. They're offering their alternative, which I, I, I said to them, I thought was unfortunate. But that's what they're doing. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, I was thinking specifically of like, because we were talking about NCSI and other groups, Kiruv, Kiruv. Oh, Nifty. Right. Listen, the criticism. Nifty is the reform. Nifty is the reform. There are many. There's BBYO. There are many, many youth groups. Um, and sometimes not that different. Listen, sometimes people are mekarved to NCSY for complex series of reasons, but sometimes the dominant reasons are social. And we like to think in lolishma, balishma, eventually think once they, okay, they're coming because the girls are nice, but then eventually they'll, they'll hear the Kedusha and maybe they'll go up to Eretz Yisrael and go learn Yeshiva, which is the best uh, scenario, the, 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 uh, the hoped for scenario. Um, but practically, uh, practically, some people become from to something that's not even Judaism through NCSY, meaning it's a it's a whole series of social connections. But their belief in the Kaddish Baruch Hu, their practice, their, their care, and their keeping halacha is is marginal at best. And so, and, and so one wonders how different they really are from, let's say, Nifty or any other of these youth experiences. Youth groups, youth groups, among other things, tap in. Youth need to be accepted. Everybody feels great in a youth group. We love you. There's, you know, and all, all of the trappings that make people feel at home. The question is, is towards what end are you doing that? And uh, yeah, we would say their kiruv is not towards the Kaddish Baruch. And, 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 and with NCSY, sometimes it is. Sometimes they can turn things around. There, we know that there's diversity in NCSY. There are different chapters, some of which, um, I mean, Derek is, among other things, uh, known as a, a yeshiva where a lot of NCSY advisors ideally send the most motivated questing of their, of, of their charges, you know, go to, go to, go to Derek. You know, it's a place that people can kind of ease into the fold more, more naturally. So in, in many ways, NCSY does fantastic work. It's, it's like with everything else, it's mixed. Eretz Yisrael, when it comes to Kiruv, a little more complicated. Um, among other problems, maybe this is similar to what I described as the tri-state situation, unlike in Santiago, uh, where they're more bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and, and receptive to from, from Kite because they just don't know about it. I had a similar experience working with Jews from California who are so far removed, they're not hostile towards orthodoxy, but in, let's say, more established orthodox communities like New York, Baltimore, Toronto, uh, where there is a strong orthodox um, population, the reform tend to be much more self-consciously anti, and if that's true there, multiply that several times around in Eretz Yisrael. There's an innate resistance, I think it's captured very nicely in this anecdote that Rabbi Wein tells. He, before he made Aliyah many years ago, he used to come and, and I think they, they spent the summer in Rehavia, uh, where, where he has a shul now, um, and Rabbi Wein is very uh, yekish tendencies and very organized person, uh, and after davening and learning in the morning, he would go on his morning walk. Uh, that was his routine in the neighborhood of Rehavia, which is not which, has, which certainly has a firm population, but has a secular population and a traditional population and everything in between. And on his very clear routine, every morning, same time, same place, um, he, at one point, same street usually, he passed a secular man walking his dog. And Rabbi Wine's very friendly, gregarious personality, and so he greeted him, because he saw them every morning. And the man, the secular man, studiously ignored Rabbi Wine. 
as is common with the practice here. Uh, one finds that a lot of people, people will ignore you when you greet them. Not only, not only secular, sometimes religious people do. Something that's unexplainable, but uh, it's a reality. In any case, he persisted and he always greeted him. And the summer came and the summer went. And the man ignored him the entire time. Next summer, Rabbi Wyman returns to Eretz Israel, resumes his walks. And what do you know? The man's walking his dog. And uh, hello, shalom aleichem, nothing. The following summer, he comes, same routine, man with the dog, shalom aleichem. He said, this time around, he greeted them. The dog barked, but the man, nothing. Right? Great story. The dog barked. Uh, right? So, and the, the man didn't greet him. Sometime eventually, after all this, and after they've been doing this for a while, somehow they broke the ice. And they made friends, and they, and they were talking. And Rabbi Wai got up the nerve to ask him. He said, so tell me, all those years that you ignored me, why did you ignore me? And the man responded, he said to him, I figured you were trying to make me fun. That's the only reason why an Orthodox rabbi would ever say hello to, hello to, a, to a secular Jew. And the truth is, he, it's terribly sad, tragic that this is the dynamic. It's come to this. They're not off. It's true. Our agenda, we wear our agenda on our sleeves. We do want to look out of them. Can't deny that. Of course we do. So they have their backs up against us. And they protest when religious people start moving into secular communities, especially around Jerusalem. But not just. Uh, Ramat Gan, which is not a bastion of religious life, uh, has now recently an influx of religious people. This is in one of the pricier uh, communities in, in North Tel Aviv. And um, they had a formal protest. We can't have, they're going to start coming in. Next thing you know, our kids going to, they're going to start uh, proselytizing our children. Our children will be exposed to their terrible Torah ideas. Um, these are dynamics in Israel. So Kiruv in Eretz Israel is very, very tricky. Um, that being said, Baruch Hashem, there are organizations. Uh, one of the original organizations, um, 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 Arachim, 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 um, is values, it means, um, is one of the flagship um, Israeli organizations. And um, they generally do well in Israel, as we've said before, with Sephardi populations, who themselves are internally anyway from and identify with from causes, don't have the means and the ability. So in Israel, in modern Israel, um, Eretz Israel, uh, you have a spiritual hunger, you have um, personalities that would emerge, um, Rav Amnon Yitzchak, um, would attract a huge following, mostly again from Edom Mizrach. His family is Yemenites, and again, the Yemenite community never intended to assimilate, so he's just bringing back people who want to be there. There were certain interesting high profile people, probably the most famous is Uri Zohar, who is an actor and a singer, and he started becoming religious in the 1970s, which was a huge scandal. And people thought he, would, he went. In order to explain this, you had to, in the secular establishment, you had to write him off and say that he simply went off his rocker, and that's what they did, and that's why they could live with themselves. Um, he, he has his, his very profound ideas. Uri Zohar says, today he's uh, got a long beard, and he's a Talmud Chacham, um, but he said, he said he compares his youth with his uh, present lifestyle, I think I've said this before. Um, he said in the secular world, especially the, the entertainment industry that he was a part of, the youth are what's valued, and that the youth will be standing on stage strutting their stuff, to be fawned over by the masses, including the older, the older people in the audience. It's all about youth and the youth culture. He says in the religious world, it's the opposite. <clears throat> it's, the, it's the elders, people who acquire wisdom uh, over, and, and, and knowledge, Torah knowledge, they're the ones we revere while the youth look on. 
and uh, which which one which one is correct. The um, there's a spiritual hunger in Israel in general. Um, you see, like, it. like like Stam Oh, right. Uh, you got you got a resort up. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's quite a change. I mean, it helps to age. Anybody who ages and gets a beard usually looks more from than you know. But uh, but no, there's no question. And he's big tzaddik now. The um, there is a spiritual hunger that one can perceive throughout the land of Israel. I think the best illustration is that it's a, it's a cultural uh, phenomenon of Israelis who serve in the army, and then immediately after the army they travel. You familiar with this? And they go up. That's why so many um, Israelis are in Nepal right now because. Going up hiking Everest is simply something you do, but part of their wanderlust, part of the fact that they're traveling the world, is because they're lost and seeking and questing. And so, their phenomena of Israelis falling into cults, um, falling into cults. There are uh, various kinds of avodazara going overseas, going to the Far East, and getting stuck there. Um, you find that also in Israelis who've left Israel and gone to America. Um, to me, to my mind, that, that reflects the spiritual questing. You can take the religion out of the Jew, but you don't take the Pintaliyid out of the Jew, and that, that remains. Um, sometimes, ironically, they go abroad and find Taira when they're overseas. There is a small phenomenon of Jews who leave Israel, thinking of um, different communities in the San Fernando Valley, which is the largest, uh, largest population of, of Israelis outside of Israel, and some of them, radically secular from their roots, uh, suddenly come to the San Fernando Valley, and it's it's a religious void, it's, and and they want to connect to something. So they go to the, they go to a synagogue. They're not going to go to Reform and Conservative because that, that doesn't speak to them at all. So they'll go to the local Orthodox school, and sometimes they'll start to become from. And I know Chabad is someone involved in this too, but not just, not just. So uh, there's certainly what to be done here. Certainly work to be. Uh, done, how you tap into it. Um, Breslov certainly has, uh, has, has, has uh, we, we spoke about Breslov last week, they certainly are, are, um, are plugging into something. The potential is immense. Uh, the person who's going to take this to the next level and, and, and uh, Makarov, the Israelis, will do great work. The, um, we mentioned the internet and publishing art school, Feldhub. Art school is a phenomenon uh, with the lit- increasing literacy, the fact that um, you know, the people can have access to so much uh, literature, I mean, that you 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 have to give a great debt uh, of gratitude to the art school, but um, many people do. Making exposing and making accessible now um, many secrets, many um, sometimes to the point that people criticizing them. Translating the Talmud is not a uniformly positive thing, as you can see in some of the lukewarm haskamas that are given to the uh, to the translations. Um, the uh, sometimes also in Kiruv Torah, the fact that you have a proliferation of Torah, let's say around the internet, it's good and bad. The fact that it's accessible that people can 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 learn who wouldn't have access otherwise, that's wonderful. But what's the, the positive is also the negative. Sometimes Torah is reduced to easy, quick, catchy sound bites, which is anything uh, anything uh, but what Torah really is. Torah's Deep. It requires sustained study. The real, the real jewels are for the people who are going to give it time. Um, there are lots of hopeful trends. Again, we said that maybe the Balchuba movement signifies some element of a schafel of people coming back. The demographic projections don't seem quite as rosy. Uh, in the diaspora, especially in the national population survey, there's been another one since, but. It hasn't changed so much. So I'm going to quote the, Na- the National Jewish Population Survey of the United States in 2000. I'm focused on the United States because that is the largest 
at least till, till now, the largest concentration of Jews in the world. Um, it indicates that if you are, if there are 200 secular Jews, and this you see in that famous chart, and if you want the chart, I'll, I'll send it to you. Uh, you can look at, on the outside of Rabbi Salinger's office, yeah, yeah. 200 secular Jews will have how many Jewish grandchildren? Based on basic demographic projections? Only one. 27. 200 Jews will have, there'll be, for every 200 Jews, two generations later, there'll be 27 Jews. Okay? Um, and the next generation of the great grandchildren, 10. Oh, it's half a million. They got a million from 200 down to 27 down to 10. Rex, that's, that's a pretty good year, though, from 27 to 10. Think about it. I mean, okay. That seems pretty productive. They are shrinking. Um, they're shrinking, but it's hard. Excuse me, that's secular. That's se Jews who identify as nothing is secular. Yeah, Rabbi, I doubt it would go lower than 10 for a long time because now any new children from even either they have to be Jewish. Fair enough. That's a, that's a fair. That's a fair insight. Of reform, of reform, the numbers get a little, get better. Of 200, it goes down to 52, and then 27 in the in the in the, in the great grandchildren generation. <laughs> Conservative are better. They go from um, 200 to 77 and then 48. I mean, they're still shrinking. And at one point, going to disappear. But um, centrist orthodox suddenly it turns around. So people who define themselves as centrist, usually I think it's modern orthodox, um, they, of the 200 uh, grandparents, um, how many will be, how many of their grandchildren will be Jewish? 2,000. No, 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 not quite. 457, over doubling, okay? Uh, and of their of their great grandchildren of centrist modern Orthodox, how many of them will have Jewish? How many great grandchildren will be Jewish? Nine hundred. Six hundred ninety-two. Six hundred ninety-two. Um, then you move over to the last slot, which is characterized as yeshivish and Hasidish. Two hundred grandparents we'll will have over nine thousand. <laughs> no, a thousand seven hundred and forty-eight oh, wow. grand awesome. Jewish grandchildren, uh, and great grandchildren five thousand one hundred and fifty-seven. Okay, generalizations. Now, the problem with, with these, and increasingly the world loves, making, loves these uh, surveys, the problem with dry number statistics is they miss the, um, the abstract nuance of life that you can't pin down in a dry number. Uh, and, and, and in any case, we know that Judaism has always been quality, not in quantity. Uh, and that, and that, you know, uh, with all the sometimes people have this is hysterical. The Jews are assimilating in droves. We're going to lose them. We know that the core of committed Jews exists as 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 much as ever, and today arguably even stronger. That's going to be where we're going to go with um, in in one of the coming classes. I'm going to do a survey of the Torah world and the great riches that people don't always recognize that we have um, the, the yeshivas and the what they're actually doing. Um, and we know that the core has always swayed the course of history, regardless of all the big um, demographic dooms doomsayers. Tomorrow, an interesting topic, maybe also less appreciated, we're going to talk about the Mizrahi, what's considered the modern Orthodox world, in Eretz Israel today, and try to give a, a, a global assessment of what's going on in that, in that sector.